Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So um, this is, as Joel says, the concluding message in this series that we've been uh, doing, exploring the life of a remarkable uh, patriarch, King David. And uh, so the first uh, talk was Jill Weber thinking about the many ways in which David might have felt forgotten as a young man. And then Adam uh, did a brilliant job, a a phenomenal job, uh, talking about faith, the faithfulness of David. Uh, Then Pete Burton last week uh, talked about, uh, again brilliantly, about uh, David being someone who was deeply flawed. And I'm bringing it all into land as we think about King David as someone who was forgiven. Forgotten, faithful, flawed and forgiven. And then uh, one of the reasons we're ending this series today is, of course, next Sunday we'll be into Lent. You knew that already, and uh, that'll be the season that leads us up to Easter. Uh, a big week this week. We got uh, Valentine's Night on Wednesday. Anyone want to admit they totally forgotten? Uh, I want to let you know I hadn't, and um, you know it's important to romance your wife. And I booked a table. I booked a table. Uh, Sammy's furious because she says she doesn't like snooker, but uh, <laughs> Kadoosh. Uh, thank you so much. Um, well, uh, of course, we all do need forgiveness. And our world desperately needs forgiveness from massive situations like what's going on in the Middle East to your local playground. Forgiveness is perhaps the attribute most absent from society today. And, um, you know, Nick Cave, the, the, the sort of godfather of goth rock, in his brilliant book, uh, Faith, Hope and Carnage, uh, talks very movingly about forgiveness. He talks about um, the tragic death of his teenage son in uh, a drug-related fall in Brighton and how he and his wife obviously struggle uh, with many deep, deep areas of grief around that, but one of them is a sense of shame as parents. And he says this, there is not a song or a word or a stitch of thread that is not asking for forgiveness, that is not saying, we are just so sorry. And so we're going to think together about forgiveness. David understood forgiveness more than most. In our scripture reading, we're going to jump right to the end of David's life as he is really reviewing his life and giving thanks to God for his faithfulness. And so if you're able to do so, would you stand out of reverence to the reading of God's word in the scriptures, please? This is 2 Samuel 22, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4, and then jump to the last verse of the chapter, verse 51. David sang 
to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. From violent people you save me. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. And he continues in this vein uh, for 46 more verses, uh, giving thanks to God for his faithfulness. And he concludes in verse 51. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> Sorry, it makes me laugh every time. For those who are new here, the seats just sound like a colony of seals every time you stand up and sit down. It amuses me. Um, we should buy the Yvonne Arnaud some WD-40. So David is about to die, and he's looking back on an amazing life. Here he is, the shepherd boy who slew the giant Goliath with a sling. Here is the solitary worshipper, just having times of fellowship with the Lord whilst out tending the flocks, who becomes the one who writes half the Psalms that will lead the whole world in worship one day. Here is the shepherd boy who becomes a soldier, and as a soldier find such success that he will eventually succeed Saul as king. Here is the architect of Jerusalem. Here is the one to whom God promised an everlasting dynasty. Here is the patriarch of Christ's own messianic line, one of the most frequent titles given to Jesus is son of David. There is no question that David was deeply favoured by God. And yet also, and here is the contradiction, this man who was so deeply favoured was also, as we realised last week, deeply flawed. Deeply favoured and deeply flawed. David reached the very heights of holiness and yet he also plumbed the very depths of depravity. And so, as we saw last week, he sinned in the most appalling way uh, with Bathsheba. It was not just a, a, a slightly sort of salacious affair. It was sexual abuse. It was power abuse. It was lying and deception. And it was ultimately, effectively, the commissioning of murder. We cannot minimise how serious David's sin, how deeply flawed he was as a person. And so isn't it extraordinary, perhaps even shocking, after such appalling sin, that David's legacy was not erased, his psalms were not redacted, his covenant was not cancelled, and his messianic line was not rerouted. Here he is at the end of his life, able to proclaim God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's favour, in spite of the fact that he was also so deeply 
broken. Now, even as I say this, I realize afresh, I suppose, how radical this is, how disturbing, how offensive, how appallingly countercultural the gospel, the Bible is at a time when, let's be honest, we live in a world where everyone is constantly trying to call other people out and uh, we want to, when we, when we catch people committing grave sin, we want to lock them up and throw away the key. We want to cancel them. So let me say this, first of all. It, it's not that David's sin is ignored or minimized in Scripture. Quite the reverse. David is dramatically called out by the Holy Spirit himself. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet uh, and, and, you know, he is exposed for his sin. And that isn't just sort of, you know, the social media doing its thing. That is the Holy Spirit exposing corruption and sin. And uh, as we see more and more leaders being exposed in our world for appalling sin, let us be quite clear that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of justice and of righteousness and of integrity and of holiness. It's an answer in many ways to our prayers down many years when we prayed, come Holy Spirit. And so a spirit of holiness has come to the church and to structures of society. God is exposing and bringing down leaders who lie, who abuse, who are narcissists, who are sexually immoral. And actually, as Christians, let me go further, we take these things more seriously than the world because we believe in holiness. We hate sin. We expect leaders to have uh, personal integrity and, and lead by personal example. You, you know, when it comes to voting, this isn't a party political statement, by the way, what I'm about to say, but, but it does matter if a leader is systematically breaking the covenant commitment to the person they love the most, how are we supposed to uh, trust them if we put them into the highest office in the land if they are not telling the truth or being honouring to their promises at home? And for years, people used to say, well, it doesn't matter. My private life is my thing. My public life, I can still do my duty. And there's something in us as Christians say, no, not so. Who you are, your character, the way you behave in private says everything about your uh, credibility and your competence in public. And I know some of you will hear this now and some will listen online, particularly perhaps in other countries, and, and will think I'm being party political. I'm not. I'm teaching the scriptures here. David is more significant than any president or prime minister, and he is called out by God for his lack of integrity. He cannot get away with it, okay? As Christians, we take these things more seriously, but where we differ from the culture is that we also, and this is the controversial bit, believe in forgiveness. We believe in redemption, we believe in restoration. We believe in second and even third chances. We believe, in other words, in amazing grace. Amazing grace. And this is the bit of today's message that is 
countercultural and even offensive in our world today. And so, of course, the moment we talk about Amazing Grace, we think about the song, we hear the song in our heads. We think about the guy who wrote it, John Newton. Many of you will know, extraordinary man, lived 1725 to 1807. He ran away to sea at the age of 11. And in a very, very brutal world, a world of sailors, he was considered the worst. He was more lewd. He was more debauched than any of the other sailors. There are accounts of him writing filthy, using this gift he clearly had with poetry to write the most filthy uh, words that his captain had to rebuke him for. He uh, wasn't just a non-Christian. He mocked people who believed in God, thought God was a myth. And uh, then he went from being, a, a, you know, a, a, a in the Navy to actually becoming a slave trader. Let me just pause and let you feel that. He, he, he was a human trafficker, the most heinous of crimes today. And then there's this moment where John Newton gets into a storm and he nearly drowns and begins to consider his fate and what his life is about. And it's a long journey for him. In fact, one of the key moments is he begins to quietly read a great book I'd encourage everyone here to read sometime by Thomas Akempis called The Imitation of Christ. And eventually, you know, some people, they get saved on the Damascus Road. It's very fast and dramatic. And some people get slow, saved on the Emmaus Road. It's slow and gentle, like a door gently opening and the light coming through. And gradually he comes to faith in Jesus. And then in the year 1772, he's preaching a sermon one day. And he is so moved by the scripture in that sermon that he, he actually turns it to a song. And he's aged 47 at this point, And his testimony becomes one of the most sung songs of all time, Amazing Grace. And by the way, I just sense the Spirit speak to me that there's someone here, you are 47 years old, the age at which Newton wrote this song. And there's things in your past and you feel you've missed it. And um, kind of the die is cast. And the Lord says that he is coming to you this year. And he, if you will let him, is going to turn things around dramatically in ways you couldn't believe. And your greatest legacy is to come. But uh, let's just think about these amazing lyrics. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Interestingly, the sermon that Newton was preaching that gave him the title of this song, Amazing Grace, was about the life of David. It was uh, about a moment where David is confronted by Nathan on another occasion, not the one where Nathan comes and calls him out about uh, his affair and everything else, but previously when Nathan comes 
and addresses David and tells him that God intends to maintain his family line forever. And in response to this overwhelming moment of grace and of favor, David, uh, we read in 1 Chronicles 17, went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough, you, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. There is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you. And so as Newton preached about these beautiful verses, David just sitting before the Lord going, I don't deserve this. He received that line, amazing grace. And the rest really is history. You see... John Newton knew amazing grace in his own life. A human trafficker saved by grace. And King David knew amazing grace in his life. Someone who commissioned murder, who was unfaithful sexually, who abused power, and yet still at the end of his life able to thank God for his faithfulness flawed but favoured. Amazing grace is the most powerful force on earth. G.K. Cheston writing about St. Francis of Assisi said this, St. Francis walked the world like the pardon of God. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing for people to say about you in your workplace, in, in, in the family kitchen? They were like the pardon of God. That the person who was a Christian in my life wasn't the one pointing the finger and scowling. They were the one constantly bringing grace and forgiveness and acceptance and unconditional love. Francis walked the world like the pardon of God. So to illustrate this, literally, let me show you two pictures. Here's the first one. It's the 20, sorry, it's bad quality, but this is the 26th of June, 1996. Many of you will remember the moment. The England manager at the time, Terry Venables, is aged 53. And he is comforting Gareth Southgate, who is aged 26, who has just missed a penalty that has cost England the semi-finals of the European Cup at Wembley in front of a global audience of 507 million people. Now, I know somebody is saying it's only football, but uh, they don't understand. When you let down a nation, when you, in the area you thought you were best, find that it is your place of greatest shame in front of 507 million people, everything seems to have ended. And so his manager, who could so easily have pointed the finger and scowled, age 53, has learnt to be a father and comes and wraps his arm around the 26-year-old who feels like the greatest failure in the United Kingdom at that moment. Fast forward literally 25 years, and now it's the 11th of July, 2021, and that 26-year-old player has become the new manager of England. Gareth Southgate is now 50 years old, and here he is comforting Bukayo Saka, aged 19, who has just missed a penalty 
that has just cost England the finals, the finals of the European Cup at Wembley in front of a global audience, get this, of 845 million people. Do you understand amazing grace breaks the cycle of shame in our world because Venables did that for Southgate and he never forgot it. He didn't back down, he pushed ahead, he became the manager and he knew exactly what to do when Sacco was in his shoes. Amazing grace breaks the cycle. And I long for the day when Christians don't just be a bit nice, but are sources of such forgiveness and grace and unconditional love in our world that we break the cycles of shame and failure and people feeling they can't do it and that their lives are hopeless and that they're not worth anything. And we go in like Venables and like Southgate and we wrap our arms around people and say it doesn't matter. You are loved. You are accepted. Because when you do that, you don't just help that person to walk for another day. You begin to change the flow of their lives so that they can do it for others. Because they experience in that moment something they may not have experienced from anyone else. Amazing grace. How sweet the sounds. It's what happened for King David. It's what happened for John Newton. It's why we must... Stand up against the bullies who say, lock them up and throw away the key and say, no, it's as bad as you say it is, but there is greater hope than you think there is in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so this is literally a picture you're seeing of grace, of fatherly love that forgives. This is a picture of redemption. But of course, we're thinking today about amazing grace, not just for a missed penalty, but for the atrocities of a slave trader called John Newton, who truly repented. Amazing grace for the atrocities of King David when he finally confessed and repented. Amazing grace for the atrocities, can we be honest, in all of our hearts. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God if we will just come to the cross. And that is the key. That is the difference right there. The cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to understand how bewildering our world is on one level it seems more righteous than ever before, but on another level it feels more self-righteous and pharisaical and legalistic than ever before. The only way to navigate is with the cross. Because you see, the cross tells us that our sins are actually worse than we ever imagined. They pinned an innocent man to the cross. You can say, well, I've never done what David did, but our sins pinned an innocent man to the cross. He died in our place. And so there's something that happens to us when we begin to focus on the cross of Christ that is deeply shaming in a good way, is deeply humbling, that says, oh my God, these things that I minimize are serious. Jesus himself says, you may not have murdered, but have you been hateful? You may not have committed adultery, but have you been lustful? And so that light gets shone on us and the cross makes us realize the gravity of our sin. It's so much worse than the trolls say. But the cross also 
this ultimate symbol of torture has become to the whole world the ultimate symbol of grace and love and redemption. Because in the cross, whilst we realise our sin is worse than we thought, we also find that God's grace is greater than we ever dreamt it could be. We are deeply flawed, but deeply favoured. Amazing grace. You know, um, when our son, um, our first son was born, Huddy, some of you heard me say this before, but we, Sammy and I were kind of shocked by the whole experience. You know, I took three years learning theology and sociology at university, but had had about three minutes learning how to be a dad, which was frankly really hard. And suddenly this little human being comes back home from St. Mary's Hospital in Portsmouth. I drove at about 15 miles an hour home, swearing I will never, ever drive a car more than this, ever. And we carry him into the house and just everything, everything, everything changes at that moment, our little one-bedroom flat. And, um, you know, Hudson proceeded to do things to me no human being had ever done before. He, he, he woke me every two hours through the night. He screamed regularly in my face. Ah! There's the time I'm holding him in the air, he's laughing, I'm laughing, a long stringy bit of dribble lands in my mouth. He puked on me. You're so sleep deprived that you go out thinking, oh, it's only baby puke, don't worry. You're constantly rocking him so that to this day sometimes you'll still see me in Tesco's with the, the shopping cart doing that, just rocking the cornflakes to sleep. It gets into you, this stuff. And then there's the time, it was summertime and... I was changing uh, Hudson's nappy, and, uh, uh, you know, there's something nice. You've cleaned them all up, and they're just clean, and they smell good, and I felt kind of proud of myself, and I just, it was summertime. I just thought, he doesn't need another nappy on immediately. <laughs> Some of the women here are like, oh, you fool. <laughs> and, 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 and here's the really embarrassing confession. When I was growing up, there was a poster that quite a lot of girls seemed to have on their bedroom walls of this bloke with a six-pack masterfully holding a baby like that. I don't know if anyone remembers it. And it suddenly flashed into my head because this is an insight into the male psyche. I want to be that man just for a moment. (laughs) And so I was masterfully in my head carrying Hudson around completely naked outside, scrunching in muscles I don't have, just in shorts and and flip-flops when... All hell broke loose, and something unbearably evil flowed down me, and I end up with a small puddle in my flip-flop. Hudson did things to me that no human being had ever done before, and yet I found that I loved him compulsively. I just couldn't help myself. When he's dirty, I had to clean him up. There was no thought about, well, let's leave him to it. It's his problem. Uh, You know, he could scream in my face and spit in my mouth and puke on me and wake me every two hours and poo on me and I still found that I loved him like I'd never loved any human being ever before. Uh, 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 And the difference, of course, is fatherhood. I've got good friends, but if any of them spat in my mouth and woke me every two hours and puked on me and pooed on me, I'd struggle to like them, let alone love them. The difference is fatherhood. 
And so I find myself saying to God, God, when you say that you're my father in heaven, surely you don't mean this. Surely you just mean you kind of love me theologically. You know, I despise you, but I love you. I don't know why God speaks in that accent. Uh, or or, or may, may, sh surely, God, you just mean, you know, you have to love me because otherwise there'd be some philosophical like vacuum created in reality. And you're kind of forced to love. And of course, something within me knew immediately. God saying, no, I love you. I am love. It's impossible for me not to love you because it is my very being. It is ontologically true. I am love. I look at you with love. And when you scream at me, and when you hassle me continually, and when you make me dirty even with your sin, all I can do is hold you and clean you up because that's what a father does. And we say, amazing grace. When I was dead in my sin, you picked me up and got dirty with me, and you cleaned us up together. The cross says it's worse than we thought and better than we thought. And so let me just finish by saying this. You cannot be too sinful for God, only too proud to accept his cleansing and his forgiveness. No matter what you have done, there is always more grace in God than sin in you. If you will just dare to take one step back towards him, you will see the Father come running towards you to embrace you. That's the parable of the prodigal son. Receiving the grace of God is the beginning of redemption. Dane Ortland, in his beautiful uh, book, Humble and Lowly, says this, It is only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ that we will leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Isn't that great? Dane Ortland, gentle and lonely. Do uh, read that book if you can. And so we're just going to respond now and it'd be great to get the band back up and I think we may even sing Amazing Grace uh, together. But I wonder if you find yourself a little offended by this message personally. Because each one of us, if we're honest at times, struggles to receive grace and to believe God's unconditional love. We think if, if he really knows what I think and the way I'm wired and who I am. Maybe it's not just how, how bad I am, but how boring I am. Like, he, there's nothing about me that God would be overwhelmingly in love with but he is love or maybe you find it hard to receive grace and believe in God's unconditional love because you feel like the ways you've messed up your life have forever damaged your future you have missed the boat you are beyond hope and I want to tell you today there is amazing grace if at the age of 47 John Newton can pen a song that changes the world. There's hope for you. Or maybe there's something in this message that has slightly offended you culturally. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to get caught up in cancel culture that's all about critiquing but not about building and restoring and redeeming. 
So busy to, easy to be busy calling out sin that we minimize grace. I wonder if perhaps for some of us there's someone that we need to forgive today. We need to break the cycle and show unconditional love. Maybe there's someone to whom we need to give a second chance. Remember Jesus says we should pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so as the band begins to uh, play now, let's just, I think what we're going to do is just sing Amazing Grace together. And as we do so, just ask, what is this grace for you? What does it mean for you in your own life, in your own thinking? What are there ways in which, as God showed his grace to David, he wants to show his grace to you? Not to cancel you, but to redeem you when you repent and to bring you into a new future? And are there ways in which some of us have got so swept up in the ways of this world that whilst we share in the critique of sin, we have lost track of redemption and that our desire is not to pull people down but to change their lives that we might build them up and release them into the fullness of all that God has for them. Even though they are flawed, they are still favoured. And see, if we don't do this for others, what hope is there for us? Because there isn't one of us in this room, one of us listening online, who is favoured but not flawed. Every one of us has reached the heights of holiness at times, but also plumbed the very depths of depravity. And in the cross, we find grace. So let's sing this together now.